So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, folks, today's episode is on a topic that I feel really passionately about. When is it the right time for an instrumental swallow eval? Ta-da! Okay, so we all know if a patient is presenting with signs and symptoms of aspiration that we need to send them out for an instrumental. We all know that we can't tell when a patient's having silent aspiration because x-ray vision hasn't been invented yet. 
Um, don't worry. I asked Goose to work on that when he gets to college in 15 years and that big old brain of his, I have um, high, high hopes that that will come to pass in like 20 years. But until then, we are working with patients every day that are in need of an instrumental. But I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Do they all need an instrumental eval right now? Hear me out. What about the patient that's 100% tube fed and you're just starting to engage with food and they only allow a little wipe on their lips or they only allow one or two mLs at a time from a syringe of um, chilled flavored water? What about the patient who's on a quality of life pleasure feeding diet because they're within palliative care, but they're showing increased signs symptoms of aspiration? Do they need an instrumental swallow eval or should that be the crucial conversation with the interprofessional practice team? What about the patient that's been on thickened liquids their entire life and the team, the whole team, the IPP team wants to initiate a tapered weaning protocol? Do they need an instrumental now on the advanced trial that they haven't attempted or should they engage in therapeutic trials for a few weeks and then attempt the instrumental swallow eval? Kel, these are the hard clinical questions that we face each week. And I am so proud to have our guest on today, Leslie Awesome Wilfong, MSP, CCC, SLP. And she has experience in a variety of settings and tools to help shape our answers to these questions with the most current evidence. Leslie, hello, sweet lady. I am so proud of you. The boys made me promise to tell you hi, and they want to check on Lucy and tell Lucy hi as well. So hello, beautiful. Hey, Michelle. It's so great to talk to you. I can't believe it's been three years since I was last on First Bite with you guys. I've missed it. That, that's it's been, it's been a very fast-paced three. I think it's actually been almost three years to the day. Yeah, I think it actually is just about three years since I did my first um, podcast with you guys. It's so great to be back. <laughs> Yay! Okay. And I'm so excited to talk about this topic because it's something that is so near and dear to my heart too. Because um, as you know, I started in an outpatient setting doing pediatric feeding. And now I have the opportunity to do swallow studies within an inpatient setting and outpatient swallow studies as well. And we have these kids that come in that these questions are asked all the time by the parents, by the team, by the treating SLP. And it's such a it's such a tricky line and it's sometimes so hard to answer. That that is that is it in a nutshell. Okay, y'all. So here's here's the backstory. Once upon a time, um, Leslie was was my student when I was just starting my private practice. So this was six years ago, woman. Yeah, five, 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 six years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been a minute. Um, and since then, she's gone on to work in a variety of pediatric placements, and she now works at a major um, children's hospital. Um, like in my humble opinion, the best in the state. And she, with those experiences, because she's seen um, so many different types of patients and early intervention, she does that on the side um, because <laughs> grad school is expensive. Uh, so she's in the trenches with us one day a week doing home health. So she gets to see these little ones in ICU, PICU, outpatient, inpatient, literally every single setting. Mm -hmm. And her and I have had the pleasure of sharing kids over the years. And it's been really awesome to be able to refer my 
home health patients in Columbia to her and her feeding clinic that she leads um, at the Children's Hospital and get their IPP um, full picture insight, okay? And what we have found is we some of these kids, it's, uh, it's like a circular debate. When is it the right time to do an instrumental? And, and it's not as often as you would think, especially if you want to do like an advanced trial that the patients had zero experience with it. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why on so many different episodes, we say you have to have a good working relationship with the folks that are doing the instrumentals because I can pick up the phone. Granted, I do have Leslie on speed dial, but like I can pick up the phone and say, one, how is my Lucy baby doing? Cause Lucy is like the cutest puppy ever. And two, um, Hey, I'm sending you this kid and this is my concern and what I'm thinking. Can you tell me what the team, give me the insight, talk to me about this, this, or this, or we've been trying this therapeutic trial. Can you tell me if this is effective? And having that communication, our patients that we do this for have way more positive, um, holistic experiences and they have better outcomes because we actually collaborate that. And I do bribe you. I do bribe you with shepherd's pie. <laughs> as the person who's doing the swallow study in most of the cases, um, it's so helpful to hear from the treating therapist and know exactly what is working well, what you guys are doing to get kids ready for PO trials. Um, Cause I do, I have some kids that have, you know, a little bit more presence of oral aversion and they need time to sort of work up to being ready for that PO trial. So you know, sometimes I'll say, Hey mom, you know, I know that we had a, you're, I heard from your training therapist. I know that you guys like to do a few things to like kind of warm up first, as far as like getting a taste of the barium before the radiologist comes in. And like, we try to set those kids up for success. And I try to do what you guys are doing at home and see exactly how it works. Because I walk into most swallow studies with generally a plan. I've looked at the kids history. I've looked at, you know, what I know about them. And I know what I want to try. I want to know, I know how I want to try to advance them. But unless I hear something from the treating therapist, you guys might be doing something that's ground, like groundbreaking, earth shattering, that's awesome that I need to look at. But, you know, maybe mom in the global pandemic hasn't been able to be present for all the therapy sessions. Maybe she's not 100% sure, like, oh, I know that they're doing something with a honey bear cup, but I'm not really sure what they're doing. Um, oh, I know we're adding some rice cereal, but I don't know what consistency we're doing. So that information. I mean, I've had SLPs email me, call me. They sometimes write, will write papers that they'll get to the parent and the parent gives to me. Um, any information that I know I can get from you guys is so, so helpful. And then generally when I'm writing my recommendations, um, I try to reach back out to the treating therapist and say, you know, this is what I think would work well. But if it doesn't, here are our other options. Because, you know, a swallow study is just a picture in time. And sometimes what you see might not be clinically tolerated on a day-to-day basis. Yes. Yes. And and just from, you know, a personal experience standpoint, when I was first, you know, a CF and I'd have a kid come in and see me and they were medically complex and they were G-tube dependent and they didn't eat anything by mouth. And the parent says, I want them to eat. I immediately thought, oh, you need a swallow study, which is generally true. But if I sent that child for a swallow study that day, with no experience with PO, most of them have pretty severe oral aversion at this point. And those swallow studies 
are by far the most difficult and I think probably the most traumatic for that child because I'm coming at them with a spoon. That never happens in their day-to-day life. It has some weird chalky consistency on it. That also never happens. And then they're turning away. They're thrashing. I need them to be still so I can see. Uh, They ended up most of the time, like they're having to hold down their arms. Somebody's having to hold their head. It's just, it's not a good clinical picture. It's very traumatizing for the child. And then, you know, God forbid that child aspirates. Is it because, you know, they were, they didn't want to eat that PO trial or is it because they truly had an impairment issue? So I think that's one or of the, were they crying? right. You know, so they're actively crying, screaming, you know, something goes over the arytenoids and it goes into the laryngeal vestibule and they aspirate. Well, did they aspirate because, you know, they're screaming at me. And, and like a lot of times, like I'll see that and I'll say, we can repeat the swallow study in four to six months once they're tolerating PO trials. And then it's kind of like we put this kid in this family through this huge trauma to basically have the same outcome that they could have had if we had talked to their treating team and said, hey, mom and dad have this goal that they want them to start to eat. I, as the treating therapist, would like to start doing messy play, um, maybe some therapeutic taste. Always clear it with the pediatrician. They might have more insight into the patient's medical records than maybe we get sometimes in home health. But usually, usually a pediatrician will say, oh, yeah, that's okay. I'm okay with doing, you know, five to 10 milliliters of whatever you guys want to try. Um, and that's, I think, the big thing, too, is always making sure that you're kind of talking with your team about, I have this thought, this is what I'm going to, I would like to try to do. And most pediatricians, ENTs, pulmonologists um, are pretty agreeable to this because they know that a swallow study, while it's great, is really intimidating for some of our kids. But that's, you hit the nail on the head. This is not a unilateral SLP decision. This is a team decision. And when we request a swallow study, that in and of itself should also be a team decision. Mm -hmm. And then that gets me into the whole thought process about like engaging in an O with OT for like regulation, because just trying to prep a kid for the event of a swallow study and being able to sit up for a swallow. Okay. I'll stop. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. All right. So let's take it from the top lady. Okay. (laughs) All right. So what are some populations that generally benefit from a video fluoroscopic swallow study, modified brain swallow study? Can can you describe Uh, some that this is indicated for? Sure. Definitely the trachea and vent population, they have a high risk of silent aspiration um, because of their respiratory status. And even in the hospital, this is a population that we will do thin liquid trials with team clearance before swallow study to get them ready. Um, Again, that's something you're talking to your team about. Then there are premature infants who typically have difficulty with coordinating respiration and swallowing, that suck, swallow, breathe. Um, Some of those kids, they just need a little bit more time. And if you have any sort of preterm infant that you see, even if they're now term, if they're having difficulty with feeding, for me, that's an automatic referral for a swallow study. You know, like you said, we don't have x-ray vision. Um, If it's a kid that's fully orally feeding at this time and mom says, we cough every single time we eat, that for me is an immediate referral um, because it, be, it could be as simple as changing the nipple flow rate. It could be as simple as pacing more frequently, but we don't know until we get that objective measure. 
The next population I always think about is the cardiac infants. Anyone who has a cardiac etiology is going to have probably some overall weakness. And that weakness and high fatigue can result in poor early laryngeal vestibular closure, which is their their airway protection. And those kids also are some that I feel like I pace them a good bit um, just because you can start to fall apart the longer that they're on their, their PO feeding. I'm sorry, something you wanted to talk about real quick? Yeah, because... Folks that you're, if you're seeing a cardiac patient in home health, if you're seeing a cardiac patient in, um, uh, an outpatient setting, this, a lot of these babies go home with the sole purpose of gaining weight so that they are, for lack of a better phrase, viable for the surgery. So you have to pay close attention to their cardiopulmonary status watch their extremities. Um, if their fingertips, their toes start turning blue, if they're going cyanotic when they're, uh, on a bottle, those, con- those signs and symptoms have to be relayed back over to the pediatrician right away, because yes, that could be apneic periods, but that could also be a deterioration in their baseline cardiac status. And, heart monitors won't pick up everything in a home health setting because sometimes they're not properly um, aligned. They're not properly um, monitored. Life happens when you're in a house and you've got five other humans you have to take care of. So, sorry. No, and I I think a lot of our cardiac infants will sometimes go home with G-tubes while they're waiting. They're working on a little bit of oral feeding, but they also need to gain weight for these major surgeries, right? And I think every single one of the patients in this population, of course, their parents are super motivated for them to get their G-tube out. But usually once they're repaired, we see it's a night and day difference in their ability to eat um because of the fatigue factor and this is going to sound really terrible but we did have an slp in the community not aware of this the goal for this patient was to you know do a certain amount through the g-tube to help them grow for a surgery and she changed the plan without communicating to anybody and now that child is not eligible for the surgery because they didn't gain enough weight oh my god um, is she consult with anybody or was she just wrote i think she heard mom's you know, I want a nurse, I want to like do all these other things. And she said, well, the only way we can do that is if we take him off the G-tube and we do less time on the G-tube and we try to do more by mouth. Well, for a kid with an issue with a cardiac issue and an endurance issue, you know, that like, while that is very well-meaning, it didn't, for that child, that child wasn't ready yet. And now we're not able to do a surgery that we really needed to do. And obviously the cardiologist is upset um, the registered dietitian is upset. Um, the speech pathology team is upset. And once people spoke with her, she now understands, you know, oh, this was something. She was like, I didn't have that information. Mom didn't tell me. And that's the thing. Sometimes parents don't understand all the bits and pieces, but that's why we have to work as a team. Um, I never want anybody to feel like, you know, you're on an island because I think sometimes home health can feel that way. But, you know, trying to find those people and say, you know, this is what mom has said that she wants me to do. This is her biggest concern, because I think the registered dietitian would have said, well, this is why we're doing this right now. Here's how we can support mom if mom wants to nurse. Can we do SNS instead? Can we do something else? Um, Wait, translate SNS. Supplemental nursing system. 
All right, folks, that's where um, those are really cool. You have a baby attached at breast and then you have a little, um, a tiny little, um, almost looks like a drip system, mm-hmm. like a, a little that aligns right next to your nipples. So that way when they are uh, latched on, they're also getting additional calories in addition to the breast milk. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So, I mean, there are a lot of places to help our parent, our parents and patients like meet their goals, but still doing it in a way that's going to support their other, um, their health overall. Uh, but we're getting off topic. Sorry. So the next population that would really benefit from a swallow study is our neurogenic population. Um, in general, these kids have really impaired swallows, especially pharyngeally, uh, which can make, make them the scariest, in my opinion, to sometimes feed. Um, when I have kids come in to me sometimes for an outpatient feeding evaluation and they have CP, I, I'm always very aware that there's probably going to be some pharyngeal impairment. Uh, J.S. Kim in a study in 2013 said that the CP population had silent aspiration in many PO trials of kiddos with moderate to severe CP because they have that impaired oral phase. It spills into the pharynx. They wait, they wait, they wait. They finally trigger a swallow. And depending on the size of that bolus, they can aspirate. Um, so just knowing like that kid, that population, giving them extra time between trials is usually really helpful doing a smaller bolus. And as soon as they're in a place where they can tolerate some trials, getting that instrumental, because those are also some of the populations that I feel like the parents, they, they feed those kids. And some of those kids, they eat well, but knowing that there is some impairment there is really key when you're doing feeding therapy. Um, the next population is anybody with an airway anomaly because they will have trouble coordinating suck, swallow, breathe, or just swamp, like coordinating swallowing and breathing at the same time. So those are going to be the kids that have laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, subglottic stenosis, BPD. Um, slow down, slow down too fast. Bronchiopulmonary dysplasia, BPD, uh, congenital abnormality. Yes. And that happens a lot of time in our really, um, preterm infants. So those kids, normally what I'll see on a swallow study is they are sitting there with the bottle in their mouth, breathing, 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 and there's passive flow of the bolus into the pharynx. And again, they have trouble with that coordination because then they already have all of that contrast in their pharynx. Um, And then laryngomalacia, I know you talk about this a lot. Um, In a study in 2019, I can give you all the citations for this too, um, 80% of children will outgrow it by 18 to 24 months. But in that time frame, that 18 to 24 months, and like before that birth to 24 months, sorry, 90% have swallow impairment on a swallow study. And 42% are silently aspirating. So just knowing, like when you hear that strider, if it's an infant that doesn't have a G-tube and they're feeding every feed and you hear that strider, knowing they probably need a swallow study. Yes. Yes. And okay, huge, huge concern here. We all know that um, some aspirations will result in aspiration pneumonia. Yes. Not all, not all aspirations will. However, if you are an immune compromised individual, if you have a neurogenic condition, if you already have compromised baseline etiology and you have laryngomalacia, you're going to increase the likelihood that you're going to be one of those that has the more severe outcomes. And 
And that's one of the, I think, hardest things about doing a swallow study, too, is making some of those clinical decisions. When you see that little bit of trace aspiration, those are the kids that um, sometimes I'll tell the parents, I need to go call your doctor. I need to, we need to have a conversation about what this looks like. Um, because sometimes with preterms that are on breast milk and they have trace aspiration every once in a while and they're not having any respiratory symptoms, Sometimes the pediatrician will say, I feel comfortable with them continuing on breast milk and we'll continue to closely monitor them and have them work with an SLP and outpatient. But if it's a kiddo with a cardiac history and prematurity and is tracely aspirating, it could be a totally different conversation because those kids are more compromised or more um, delicate and knowing that maybe then we do need to talk about thickening and is thickening going to be safe for their gut because thickening opens up a whole new can of worms. That is equally challenging. Oh my God, we got to come back and do another one on this. Y'all, this is why I love collaborating with my folks that are actually in the hospitals because here's the deal. When we're doing therapy in an outpatient setting or home health, your caseload typically stays your caseload for six months to two years. So say you've worked in home health or a private practice for two years. That's awesome. You have two years worth of experience, but you might have only seen 30 to 45 different patients in that time frame because some of these kiddos stay on your caseload for so long, right? And you only have so many hours in your week versus our colleagues that work inpatient, our colleagues that are part of feeding clinics, they, my goodness, how many different patients do you see a week, Leslie? Uh, I mean, I think there are really, there are only like eight kids that I see consistently every week. And then other times, probably, I probably see 35, 40 different kids a week, to be honest, if I'm thinking about it. Yeah, but that's, that is so much more exposure to different conditions than those of us that work in private practice. I mean, I, I remember you and I shared a little one that had Wolf Hirschhorn and mm -hmm. that's, a very rare genetic condition. And I've had the pleasure of working with two individuals in a private practice setting, home health with Wolf Hirschhorn, but yet you've seen like eight individuals, which is a much larger um, exposure and knowledge. So yes. Okay. Squirrel. Okay. Let's get, let's get it back on track because you and I can talk about this. For right. right. I mean, and so then like okay. the last two populations are the craniofacial population and the genetic population. Um, this would be a whole nother podcast that we could talk about, but the craniofacial population, if you have a kid with Pierre Robin and they are, you know, they're micronathic, maybe they have a tongue tie, please do not say that they need their tongue tie clipped. Like, thank you. It's yes. functional. It is supposed to like, I had an SLP in a forum on Facebook because sometimes I see this and she's like, he has a trach and he has a tongue tie. And I think we should get the tongue tie clipped. I'm like, no, no, no. Because the tongue tie is actually very, very functional in a child who has a trach because they're so micronathic that they cannot breathe. They haven't, for whatever reason, had a mandibular distraction, which is what we do now at our children's hospital with most of those kids who are severely micronathic. Um, but if you, sometimes those tongue ties are important so you don't have glossoptosis and airway obstruction. So just knowing, I know it's really trendy right now. You see a tongue tie, everybody says, oh, we should, we should clip it. But See how that kid feeds. Take a look at the whole big picture. Because if you 
don't and you go to an ENT that maybe also likes to clip tongue ties, it could also be contraindicated. Um, so that's, that's like my one like soapbox. Like usually I'm okay with like clipping a tongue tie, but if you've got a kid who is at risk of airway obstruction, like it is not appropriate. Okay. So the American Academy of Pediatrics actually did a big journal article on it and said that, um, uh, it's, it's being overdone and a hundred percent. Yes. And to the point that in, um, it was like 15 or 25% of the cases, it actually caused major medical conditions. Y'all, we are supposed to have a lingual frenulum. It is there for a purpose to anchor our tongue down. Okay. I, <clears throat> we, we need to get, um, We'll have to phone Melissa. We we need a yeah, three-way I mean, conversation it's, it's, on this one. And the, and we were reading an article about it too at our children's hospital and having an open discussion about it. And it's interesting that the population that is getting it the most appears to be white males. Like white male infants are more likely to get a lingual phrenectomy than any other population, which, you know, is it because that they have different insurance and some of our other friends because Medicaid doesn't really reimburse very well for this. Is this because maybe their moms are trying to nurse them more than other cultures are interested in nursing? I don't know, but it's, it's almost like an automatic referral that we see more young white males getting this procedure done than anybody else. And I just, I just find it very interesting overall. That is. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, yeah, you wanted to talk about the signs and symptoms of aspiration as well. Yes, ma'am. Lay it on his lady. Okay, We're so. coming back in the summer for the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are some signs and symptoms of aspiration. We think about frequent coughing and sputtering with feeds, eye tearing during feeds, wet, gurgly vocal quality during feeds. Um, if you have a kiddo that comes in for an evaluation, they're not eating at all by mouth and their parents say, I want them to eat by mouth. You're thinking they need a swallow study. Pay attention to their secretion management. Are they having to be orally suctioned to get those secretions out of their mouths or are they tolerating their secretions? And when they vocalize, how do they sound? Because that can also give you a little bit of insight into, is this child swallowing? Um, because if you've got a child that is not, is like having to have their secretions suctioned out, they have oral pooling. These are going to be kids definitely thinking about being a little bit more impaired. Yes. And if you have a patient that is just drooling, when yes. she's saying manages oral secretions, if you've got a two-year-old that it's just a running spigot out of their mouth, then that's indicative that they are not managing what their body can produce and mm -hmm. adding additional to that is counterindicated. Right. So, I mean, then you're thinking like I've had kids come in before that have not been managing their secretions well and they go through four or five like little bibs a day because they are just drooling so much. So knowing that that kiddo, if you are able to get to the point where they are t tolerating limited taste, they definitely need a swallow study because they are probably very impaired. Um, another automatic referral for me for a swallow study is a brewie, which is a brief resolved unexplained event. And that could be like the mom is feeding the baby. All of a sudden baby turns blue, baby turns limp. Um, baby comes back by themselves, like mom is, you know, patting baby and baby starts breathing again, but that breath holding, that cyanosis, you know, you assume there's a drop in their heart rate, that can be indicative of a major aspiration event. And at least at the hospital that I'm at, that is an automatic referral for a swallow study. Um, 
doesn't matter if it happened, you know, after a feed or during a feed, if I see that in the chart, that is the first thing that I will do because I want to make sure that if that child is one that is just tracely aspirating as sometimes babies will, if that is the cause of this brewie, they're going to go home and they're going to do it again. And God forbid that baby doesn't come right back um, and they're at home. So brewies is definitely something you want to swallow study for. Um, and then any unexplained respiratory illnesses. If you've got a kid that comes in and they're like, oh, yeah, they have this chronic cough. They always sound junky. They always, you know, we're on all kinds of albuterol treatments. That would be a kid that I would think about needs a referral to pulmonology and probably needs a swallow study. There's... There was some research that came out. I went to my very first ASHA several years ago. No, it was an ASHA Connect, like several years ago. And they were talking about how patients that have a level one or two laryngeal cleft often get missed. It's just uh -huh. um, missed, and it missed for years, y'all. Like they could be like middle schoolers, high schoolers, and they just have this history of like chronic upper respiratory infections. So if you've got a kid that just keeps an upper respiratory, keeps um, just, it sounds like a cold, like in their, in their chest, those are potentials, red flags for um, a, a cleft. And mm -hmm. that need that needs to be sent up for uh, a swallow study as well as to an ENT that's familiar with laryngeal clefts. Just like, don't send me a child that has a fluency component. I cannot, it's not in my scope. I'm not going to do it. I will make it worse. Not all ENTs are skilled with assessing for a laryngeal cleft. It's just not what they, they treat normally, right? Mm -hmm. So make sure that you're sending to the right person. Right. Because I mean, so. even on it, like on a swallow study, if I see that, deep frequent penetration like that makes me think that there could be a cleft there and normally then I refer to our ENT and our ENTs are really good about doing a joint scope with pulmonology and they'll do like a bronch at the same time and they one of the ENTs was telling me the other day that she had read some literature about if they saw a deep inner arytenoid notch that they'll do a gel injection even if maybe there's not a cleft just because it has been shown so often to improve swallow function. Um, so that's always something to advocate for. I mean, it's it's amazing the all that we are learning in our field about swallowing and having a great team behind you that works with you is a huge piece of this um, because we don't know what we don't know, right? We don't know what we can't see. And that's the beauty of a swallow study is being able to get that like objective assessment of swallowing function. I remember as a student at one point, I had a clinician t tell me, like my supervisor said, when I got older and got better at it, I would be better at detecting aspiration at bedside. And that's, that was really not a great statement because we, we don't have x-ray vision. Um, there was a retrospective study out of Boston Children's Hospital that said, observation of feeding skills by skilled clinicians are not sensitive enough to diagnose aspiration. We don't know what we don't know. Um, so if you have a kid, you have like some of those diagnoses that we talked about, they are having some of these signs of aspiration, ask the question. 
you know, like, let's go and get that swallow steady. As long as I, my general rule of thumb is if that child is, you know, G-tube dependent, not eating by mouth, if they are doing between 15 and 30 milliliters of water, taste of purees, whatever it is, they're probably ready for a swallow study. Um, if they don't eat anything by mouth and that swallow study would be their first attempt, it's probably not going to go well. But I would think about like some therapeutic trials, clear it with the pediatrician or with their team and go from there. Yes. <clears throat> okay. So we can't just unilaterally as a silo clinician say, Hey, I'm going to do therapeutic trials of PO for a kid who has been in PO. That has to be a team decision. That has to be communication with the pediatrician. If you work in a facility where you have access to a, a feeding team, um, and I mean, I don't have access to a feeding team. I'm not part of a traditional feeding team, but I'm also kind of sort of part of a traditional feeding team in my little world because I reach out and I make the referral to the feeding clinic and I relay over the concerns. So I'm like a long distance team member, but I'm also the one that's there doing the therapeutic trials. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Okay. So for... We know the kiddos that need an instrumental. Mm-hmm. We know the signs and symptoms of aspiration. Um, and we clearly know that silent aspiration is occurring or there is a risk for it and we'll never be able to tell the actual when. When is when do you get a referral and for to hold an instrumental and you're like, but this is not indicated? And I asked this with, I got a, um, a text message from a community clinician in Virginia and she's, she's working with the kiddo and they've been doing therapeutic trials. They've been trying to increase PO and she was so frustrated because she sent the patient for a swallow study and the hospital clinician refused to do the swallow study and said it wasn't clinically indicated. And the community clinician was like, look, we've been trying to do advanced PO trials. We'd like to make a full diet order change to like progress to like a, a less chat, like a, the, the next appropriate level up on the ITSI diet and the hospital-based clinician refused and, but like refused when the patient was there and it became like a big brouhaha, right? Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've yeah. ever done that. <laughs> she was, I mean, when, when the community clinician texted, she was like, Michelle, what is going on? I'm like, that's a phone call conversation. I can't talk about that one over text. Bless your heart. Like let's schedule some wine time. Right. (laughs) But like what on your end, when you see a referral, what tells you this is not an appropriate time? In an outpatient setting, I really think about like super severe oral aversion. I think about kids whose respiratory status or um, neuro status doesn't make them appropriate. And I'm talking about kids with really high like ventilator settings. If they have a trach in event um, and their like their respiratory support is that which they're probably not appropriate for PO trials, that makes me a little bit more nervous. Neuro status, if they have unmanaged seizures, like I've had a kid before that didn't have a G tube that came in for a swallow study and had an active seizure during the swallow study. 
And, you know, at the end of that, I had to have that crucial conversation with mom that feeding is not safe if your child is not medically stable enough to participate. Because, you know, you know, luckily we were able to see this on the swallow study. We know that it didn't enter her airway, but this was, this was me feeding. And then like, I stopped when she started having the seizure. We have doctors here. You know, if you had gone home and God forbid she'd had a gross aspiration event, that could have been really dangerous. Um, so I think like those settings are like, those populations are definitely ones that I would give pause to doing an instrumental with. Um, if a kid has just had a swallow study in the past four to six months and I I have had community therapists before say, you know, it's been four months. I want to repeat it so I can advance them to the thin. And I'll, I'll say, well, I saw on their last swallow study, their swallow function was great. You know, we had this, like, we had this penetration. We had, you know, a little trace aspiration. We went to ENT. We got the the notch injections you've thinned them clinically they're tolerating a thin liquid diet you know do we really need to expose the child to radiation again um because that is one thing like some of these kids will get radiation exposure many times a year because of their different conditions or different instrumentals that they need to have done so you always want to think like safest least amount of radiation possible but Um, I feel like most of the time, if I will try to help that community therapist, wherever they are, to give them the confidence moving forward, because I've been that therapist. Um, so I don't, I don't know what happened in that particular instance as to why the therapist didn't do the swallow study. Um, Yeah, I I still don't understand. And it, it blows my mind, but. I feel like most of the time I will, I will, like, even if it's a kid that I, you know, like they come, they're coming back again. And I know I only need to look at one thing. I might do a shorter protocol. I might do an abbreviated study instead of looking at, you know, 18 million different things. Um, But that's, you know, kind of on a case by case basis. So I've got, I have one little guy on my caseload that I've worked with, um, for a very, very long time now. And he is um, <laughs> feisty, to put it politely. Okay. So this little guy, when he gets upset, he attempts to decannulate himself or pull out his um, GJ tube. Uh, and, and he, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he does it while he narrows his eyes at you and makes eye contact. So he knows that he's not supposed to do it, yet he does it anyway on purpose to get, that is a smart cookie right there, right? Um, he was um, he was preemie, a uh, feeder grower in the NICU, sent home, struggled to gain weight at home, went back to the hospital and had an NG tube placed in the hospital room when he was... Um, uh, I think eight weeks post um, discharge from the first NICU stay. They dropped the NG tube, did not confirm it with x-ray, went straight in his lungs. Aspiration by proxy, coded, major neurologic event um, for a kid who did not have neurologic event. And now Munchkin's got a whole host of comorbidities with SAS. So got to love them. Um, 100%. GJ tube bed, right? A hundred percent. So we are 
just working on um, getting trials to lips um, and um, and the and in the process of doing transition to the public schools. And the school-based clinician um, wanted to know why we have not done a instrumental swallowy valve. The last swallowy valve was from 2018. And, uh, you know, he's, he is only managing his secretions. He is, uh, he's managing his secretions and he is accepting different flavored toothpaste. And that's how we've been going about getting ready for accepting more. Um, so, uh, uh, there's an organic brand of toothpaste that's got like blueberry flavor, strawberry flavors, and just getting teeth brushing to occur was incredibly, a horribly traumatic experience for this kid. But this kid, he knows, and he's had so much surgical trauma in his little lifetime, right? So that's one way that we've been going about getting ready. But I had explained to the school-based clinician, yes, we've been doing feeding therapy, but we're not even at the point where he's accepting even um, uh, trials, therapeutic trials orally. I mean, mom's finally gotten to the point where when she's cooking something, if there's like a broth or um, like a gravy, she can brush it across the surface of his lips and he'll bring his little tongue out now and lick it off which is, my goodness, that is a mountaintop comparative to the valleys this kid has been through, right? So I've had to explain that feeding therapy may not always look like we're putting actual food in the kid's mouth. Like this is the, this is the, the, the foundation. This is the framework for moving forward. While we're also working on Passimura valve trials. And this kiddo went from four liters of oxygen through his trach, now down to room air for most of the day, Passimura valve trials, um, which, I mean, we're, it would be lovely to get this kid cannulated in the year. Like that's the, the pulmonologist's goal, right? So y'all, those are all factors into getting this kid ready for an updated instrumental. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely, I completely agree. You know, I think that a lot of the time therapists, we get caught up in, they have to tolerate three teaspoons or they have to tolerate this to their lips five times or, you know, these goals. But we have to keep in mind that Feeding is supposed to be something like eating is something we love. Feeding should be something that's fun. It shouldn't be scary. You're meeting this kid wherever they are. And sometimes those victories can be as small as that taste to their lip. And that's huge. Um, it doesn't, I hate it when somebody was like, well, you know, they had this oral version, but I just put the spoon in there and, you know, they'll that's swallow. That's why they have an oral version. Sorry. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking because when kids are doing that, they're trying to communicate with you that something that they're not ready and we should be respecting their autonomy wherever they are in supporting them. And sometimes, you know, you have to have that conversation with mom or dad. Like, I know that you want them to eat. We're going to get there. It's going to take some time. 
And these are going to be our baby steps. Um, Cause you know, you're talking about him being GJ dependent. You know, if he's having, if he was having a lot of oral aversion, you know, what was his G2 regimen like? Do we need to talk about like compressing it more so he can have some hunger cues? Cause if he's on continuous feeds, he might never feel hungry. You know, are we constipated? Does our tummy always feel bad? And that's why we don't want to eat. You know, would a better, a different formula be a better fit for this child? I've had some kids that have changed general formulas and it's a night and day difference based on what that kid is willing to do or feels better enough to do because you know we are what we put into our bodies and if for whatever reason that formula that we're putting in doesn't fit that person they might not be ready to eat right now and those are the questions that we should be asking not why won't they let me put a chewy tube in their mouth Kids learn to eat by eating. Like you have to take this big approach and like think a little bit bigger about like, why? Why are we not making maybe progress to our goals? And that would be why, you know, this whole, we talked about how important it is to collaborate with other professionals. Some of my favorite people to work with are registered dietitians. They are so smart. They have such a great understanding and they'll say, you know what? Like, oh, this child's having trouble stooling. Maybe this other formula that has more fiber in it would work better for them. Or, oh, let's like, let's slow down this rate. Let's change this. Like, they are wizards. I love them. Um, because if their tummy, if a kid's tummy doesn't feel good, they're not going to be ready to eat. Um, and if they're not ready to eat, then they're not ready to participate in an instrumental. Right. Right. And like, and even then, you know, you talk about like, you know, trying to do some messy play. And I, I, one of the things that I didn't hear about it in grad school, but I recently went to a continuing education webinar. And I'd love to talk with you about this some too, Michelle, is responsive feeding. It's something that I saw you do as a student and I was intuitively doing, but I had never heard it labeled. And it's truly respecting that child's autonomy, um, helping to expose them to foods in a way that's not as aggressive as like there's some feeding methods where it's like take a bite take a bite take a bite and we have to be able to show our kids we respect what they are willing to try you know as a parent you have control over what time you present the food and what you present it's your child's choice whether or not they're going to eat it and how much of it they're going to eat like and that's something that even a typically developing toddler will say well I don't want to eat that. And you wouldn't force that child to eat it. So why would you force a child with an oral version, a feeding tube, other delays to eat something that they didn't want to eat? Wait, who is the class? Um, it's, hmm, I'll have to get it to you. I can't remember offhand. It's just, it was responsive feeding and it was a huge, massive webinar in Texas. It was supposed to be able to go there, but then, you know, COVID happened. Um, and was that Marsha Dunn Klein when she, yes. yes. And she is, I mean, gosh, she's so cool. I want to be her friend in real life. She's such an amazing person. I have such a girl crush. Um, but just, you know, hearing other people are doing what, you know, we are doing, but they have a name for it is something that is really, is really beautiful because we don't, I feel like in grad school, you hear over and over again, you have to have measurable outcomes. Sometimes those outcomes can be a little bit hard to measure, but you have to, you have to meet that family and that child where they are. And sometimes when we write our goals, I will put in the goal. Um, uh, I will write goals 
for my families to follow up with other professional colleagues. Mm-hmm. So it may be, um, especially for our medically fragile kiddos, patient's family will follow up with dentists to discuss signs and symptoms of cavities, caries, bruxism, because those are other factors why children don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have the capability to explain, hey, this hurts, you you just have to seek out what are the other potential reasons why they don't want something near their mouth. Right. So that's, and that is a measurable goal. Did they go? Yes or no. And what, when they went, what is the potential outcome? Um, who is it? Sarah from Instagram world, oral care saves lives, short and sweet speech. She's got the greatest stickers. <laughs> oral care saves lives. It does. If we get our tiny humans, if we, uh, go through and clean their teeth and actually break down the bacteria when these babies that we know are aspirating have less bacteria to aspirate upon, we decrease the likelihood for aspiration pneumonia. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that's very well researched in the adult population as well. You know, good oral care, oral hygiene is so important in people who want to do something liquid trials that, you know, have a history of aspiration. Like oral care is. So, so important. Mm-hmm. Same for our tiny humans too. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So we've we've covered a lot of when is it not clini- clinically indicated to do an instrumental swallow valve. We've covered how some different strategies to get our children there. And, and again, we've talked a lot over the last, oh my goodness, three years, about tapered weaning protocols. Mm-hmm. But I cannot stress enough the positive impact of a tapered weaning protocol. If all you have known is a level, help me out here, Liz, I don't have itsy in front of me, a level four thick and Mm -hmm. liquid, basically a honey thick and liquid, and we want to get you to a thin liquid, that's I mean, a you can't, huge like, change. That's a huge change. You're right. It's like I would ask you to drink a milkshake every day for six months and then suddenly give you water. You're probably going to cough. It's just, you know, you have to set these kids up for success. Because um, even with the MBSIMP protocol, with a thin liquid trial, the first trial from the spoon, you generally throw that out because sometimes people get discoordinated when they have a new consistency for the first time. So if I see a kid with that's been on honey thickened liquids i had a little boy the other day with down syndrome that has only been on honey thickened liquids his first trial of thins was on the swallow study he aspirated the first trial but then the next ones looked better his mom was so worried about that aspiration i'm like i really think we're gonna be okay we have to give him a chance let's start like let's give him a limit with the thin liquids let's have him closely follow with the team but we can't expect someone to be successful as something they've never done before. I would never ask you to go out and run a marathon if you'd never trained for it, right? <laughs> also, you you know me, running I like to do, but I'm definitely not great at it. <laughs> so, Sorry. I, yeah, I mean, so I'm a big advocate for like, as long, and if you don't see this in a swallow study report, that would be a good reason to reach out to the clinician that did it, um, especially if they modified that child's diet to a thicker consistency, um, saying, you know, before we do a repeat instrumental, 
can we consider like thinning them down or just doing thin trial, thin liquid trials therapeutically? Like what's our plan? Um, the other thing that you should always ask the question about too, is if you get a swallow study report and they have changed the child's diet to like a slightly thick or moderate, moderately thick diet, they should have another instrumental at some point. I've heard about some kids who had a swallow study done maybe at a different hospital, different state, whatever, and they get put on this altered diet and then they're never seen again. No one should be on thickened liquids for their entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if we're seeing consistent aspiration and difficulty managing thin liquids, that's a referral to ENT, GI, pulmonology, neuro. We need to figure out why. Um, because you know we know that thickened liquids can lead to dehydration. It's an it's a cost for families. It's a burden. Um, Consistent thickening is a whole other can of worms. So, yes, I would definitely advocate for most of my kids having thin liquid trials prior to a repeat swallow study. Depending on the level of their impairment, I might give them a different limit. But that's why we work as a team and we discuss, you know, how much aspiration was there with those thin liquids? What does the pulmonologist feel good about? What does the pediatrician feel good about? Like, how does mom feel about this plan? Does it just need to be with speech or can it be every day? You know, all Mm -hmm. those things too. Okay. So you and I shared a case, um, uh, got the referral from Melissa, Mm -hmm. um, sweet, sweet little guy who's now a big brother. Um, and I've had the pleasure of working with this family for two years, two years. And the very first time I went to their home, he was on the thickest, thickened liquid I've ever seen. It was, it was almost like drinking pudding. Right. And he was, had just learned how to sit up because of his genetic condition. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about now. (laughs) Over the course, I started seeing him in, in January. Over the course from January to October, we sl- we had a baseline swallow study that said he was okay to start therapeutic trials of thin liquids. It took us 10 months, 10 months of slowly decreasing the, li- the thickener. And mom did it every two weeks. Every two weeks, she did like a quarter of a teaspoon less of the thickener, right? Mm-hmm. Over that time, he also had an adenoidectomy, um, a tonsillectomy, and um, actually outside of that time frame, he went back and ended up having a superlatoplasty for laryngomalacia as well. But 10 months time, slowly decreased the thickener a quarter of a teaspoon. He went from pudding thick to thin liquids, drinking it from a straw. Yeah. He just needed time, 10 months worth of time. Yes. Every single quarter scoop less, there was a little bit of coughing. There was like for the first day, well, he had to adjust to the new viscosity. And the new anatomy too, right? His entire anatomy has now changed as well. Whole whole digestive tract has been cleaned up. But guess what? He no longer snores. He no longer snorts. He's finally sleeping through the night. Attention has improved. And overall... um, general state of well-being has improved because he's finally getting fully oxygenated when he sleeps right Mm -hmm. um fun fact he also started um urinating and um having increased um urine output and uh decreased constipation well yeah because he's getting more fluids (laughs) yes exactly but it took time 
And during that time, he only had, I think, two swallow studies. We did the swallow study that it came to me with that I think Melissa did. Mm-hmm. And then um, you did one no, follow-up. Sam, Sam did the second one and she brought it up okay. to me because she knew that I knew you and the kid. Um, yeah. And we looked at it yeah, together. Yes. And I think you were involved somehow. But yeah. like now Munchkin is independently self-feeding, self-drinking, and is made all this tremendous progress. I say this because this kiddo previously, prior to me, had a therapist working on non-speech oral motor exercises for a structural-based oropharyngeal dysphagia and um, let food be thy medicine. Mm-hmm. We slowly changed the viscosities. It took us a long time to get there, but y'all, we got there. I, you, and we only had to have the two instrumentals. Right. And that, maybe that would be a kid, you know, you had asked like about doing a repeat and not being indicated. I think if you had come every month to me wanting to repeat it every time you changed his viscosity slightly, I would say no. I would say, you know, are we clinically tolerating it? This was our long-term plan. You know, if we're not tolerating it, then we're happy to repeat. But slow and steady sometimes wins the race. <laughs> and he he did beautifully. And I think that that's, you know, you're a skilled clinician. You're working with him. You're educating mom. She's well-versed in the signs and symptoms of aspiration. His respiratory status was stable. And now he's... Now he's tolerating thin liquids. And isn't that the ultimate goal is, you know, to get rid of that thickener Mm -hmm. for, well, and for him, we could now, as we say this, there are some children that will need altered means because of their baseline disorder. But at the same time, this child is going to have to have, like, he's going to have a lifetime of additional surgeries coming up. I mean, he's, we have we had to limit the radiation exposure because big picture, this kid will need them regularly. And actually, I think the only reason we even did the second one was because it was um, post one of his surgeries. And we just wanted to see how he was doing a couple of weeks post-op. Um, Which is another thing too, you know, thinking about once a kid's had a major surgery, like an airway anatomy change, they do need time to heal. Um, like if you talk about superglottoplasty or like an airway reconstruction, we typically at our hospital recommend a few weeks, to let the kid heal, get used to that new anatomy, and then we'll repeat a swallow study because clinically, immediately post-op, you probably are going to see some signs and symptoms of aspiration because they're adjusting to something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other one that I'll leave you with is one of my little friends who has Down syndrome who has had multiple swallow studies also, um, can safest for a honey thick liquid diet. She's not appropriate for clinical thinning to like a nectar thick or the slightly thick because of the amount of aspiration that we saw on her swallow study. But it was similar to the amount of aspiration that we saw with thin liquids. So her team, her pulmonologist and ENT said, okay, well, we want her to do honey thick liquids most of the time at home. But with speech and like one time a day, she can do therapeutic trials with thin liquids because we don't know is aspirating a thin liquid easier on her lungs than aspirating a thickened consistency. So that's something to also take into account. So she's still getting that thin liquid practice and preparation for another swallow study after she has her next 
Bronk and all the other instrumentals. But we know that that's a trial that we would want to do a thin liquid trial rather than doing like a gradual thinning. And that's one of the reasons you would want to talk to that treating SLP that did the swallow study, because if I didn't have that information, I probably would try to thin her clinically. And that's a lot more thickened consistency that's going into her airway. And we don't know how that would affect her lung health. So hard because it's such a case by case basis, right? Every kid is so different and every treatment plan is so different. And it's what makes our jobs fun. And I think the biggest thing that we can probably take home from all of this is collaborating with your team, like talking to that ENT, talking to the pulmonologist, talking to the SLP that's doing the swallow studies, um, talking with the treating SLP. If you're the SLP doing the swallow studies, because altogether, like the decision that's made in the 30 minutes that a kid's in there for a swallow study will affect their life for the next, you know, six months to a year. And are we doing everything we can to benefit that patient? And I think that's something that I think about every day is, you know, this family is going to have to go home and do this. Like whatever I recommend is going to change their lives. Uh, we, we, have, we have to switch over to questions, but there are so many other questions that I have for you. And this would take another hour. And I'm sure that people out there listening have a boatload of questions because let's be honest, when you don't know, when you're the community therapist and you're reaching out to the hospital therapist, it's really scary because we don't know what y'all see and what y'all know. And that is intimidating. So if folks want to learn more from you, how can they, how can they learn from you? Um, if you can feel free to, you know, shoot me an email. Uh, my name, it's my first name, L-E-S-L-I-E period. My last name, Wilfong, W-I-L-F-O-N-G period slp at gmail.com i'm happy to you know try to field any questions but um you know i know it seems intimidating to talk to the hospital slps but most of us were also outpatient slps or home health slps too so i know we seem intimidating but i don't feel that way um i want to know what you guys know y'all are the people that are doing it every day you know these kids better than i do um, I really respect what you have to say. And, you know, I think that the best thing for our kids is for us to all to really be friends, you know, and keep working together. So yeah, feel free to shoot me an email. It's my first name, Leslie, period. My last name, Wilfong, period, SLP at gmail.com. Excellent. And I also know that she's got some really good webinars with Speech Therapy PD. So ta-da. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, as always, everybody here at First Bite, we just want to tell you thank you for joining us this week. Uh, please check us out uh, for upcoming episodes, topics, and functional resources. Uh, you can follow us on at First Bite on Instagram, and we have the First Bite Facebook page. We love it when uh, you finish listening to an episode and drop five stars on the Apple Podcast reviews. That helps us. It helps us grow. And uh, everybody, thank you. We appreciate you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. 